Podcasting from the Star Group, home of the iconic Dressable Lions. This is Beyond the Known, the podcast that takes you a step beyond what you know about business. I'm your host, Paul M. Newberger, president of the Star Group. On today's episode of Beyond the Known, our guest is Jim McCabe, founder of Milwaukee Brewing Company. Jim, welcome to the program today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, to get us going, I know that you were inspired by Milwaukee's brewing history as well as the craft beer scene on the West Coast. You've talked openly about the education the average beer drinker in Milwaukee has gone through, like asking, quote, for beer in a frosted glass. How did MKE Brewing and other craft breweries like Lakefront change the beer culture here in Milwaukee? Well, it changed dramatically. I mean, I think what I fell in love with was as an engineer, I was a Marquette guy in the 80s, and we had this tremendous community pride around our industrial brewing base. And that goes back to the time before the city was even officially a city. So it was a very cool history with the with the European immigrants and the technology that came over, the climate we had, everything that made this the perfect place to brew beer and, and then the demand for it as the U.S. economy grew to see, you know, see breweries from Milwaukee feeding, you know, supplying beer to the world, basically. So it was a very cool historical context. But then, you know, what some people still aren't aware of is home brewing became legal. It was actually illegal up until Jimmy Carter's administration. And he, uh, he's the guy that made home brewing legal. So a bunch of guys who were in the service and drank great beer over in Germany or traveled started to experiment at home with very limited resources and one of those guys would be Randy Sprecker and he you know he spent some time in the service and came back and wanted to make these great legacy beers the way they tasted over in Europe which was quite a bit different than what you know the US industrial beer scene had become so you can credit really Randy Sprecker and then the Klish brothers in the 80s for really kicking it off and saying this is something different and I can admit that I only now know it's illegal, but I used to ship that stuff to my friends all over the place and say, look at what these guys in Milwaukee are doing. Cause I thought it was, it was great. It takes this historical reference and turns it into something that's actually delicious and different. So I was digging it. Well, based on what you just said there, I think I speak on behalf of all of our listeners at Beyond the Known when I say, thank you, Jimmy Carter. <laughs> for that. Yes, sir. For that, for that piece. One of the things, when you talk about the beer scene, especially in Milwaukee, we historically have thought of big brands, Miller, Pabst, and with this diversity and with the change in beer culture, those big brands aren't as predominant maybe as they used to be. There's more diversity. There's more choice now. Some individuals might say, hey, I miss the days where it was all Miller and Pabst. Now there's more diversity. Now there's more change. Why is that a good thing, do you think? Well, I think that's just life as an American in general is we want more and we want it now. And I think that people will say, boy, it was better when there were four different beer brands and they were all pretty similar I, and they were competing over the next category of something similar like light beer, dry beer, all these different versions of what was, you know, genuine draft was a concept that they copied from each other. And those kinds of things get pretty monolithic and so when craft beer came along, I mean, just like other consumer products, and you can think of it in beverages or food or anything else, because it became legal, we all were exposed to more flavor, and naturally, we want more of it, and we want it now. So that's the American way. And, and so it exploded once people got a chance to try it, not without its hiccups. 
it definitely from the eighties on it, it's been a great story. Now don't, you know, you also said not as dominant as they were there, you know, the big breweries are still over 80% of the market. You know, they still have the name above their famous football, empty football stadiums, but they're, you know, they're still the ones that you see as the dominant marketing force and volume in the beer industry. But just like any other consumer goods category, the craft categories and import categories have a decent, significant role now. I think it's the understatement of all understatements that Milwaukee has a very rich brewing history. I think it's well documented and a lot of people are very familiar with that. How would you say that our brewing history helps our brand image in that regard? That's a great question because that's an assumption in the question itself because there was a time when we first when we first opened the alehouse in the late 90s that the city had actually had an active effort to brand themselves away from beer and brats and was trying you know all kinds of things to put an image on the city that was something different and in fact when people would come to visit the city I mean that's that was part of the tourism culture and part of something that was unique and frankly when you travel we've all experienced it oh Milwaukee you guys most like beer so I mean we are our name definitely is associated with beer and for good reason because if you look at that you know the the World War II you know Schlitz ads that you know they're supplying beer to the world I mean, we really were, and for the right reasons, for frankly, for volume reasons and quality reasons, known for beer. So you started the Milwaukee Ale House in 1997 as a brew pub, and in 2007, you opened up Milwaukee Brewing Company, which for those listeners who don't know, is located in Walker's Point. You're now located on 9th Street, just a few blocks away from the Pfizer Forum in a much bigger venue. Can you describe the process of scaling the business over sure. these 23 years? Yeah, I mean, I guess if you read the original business plan from 1996, it really was one, you know, the reason you write a business plan is it's got to be, it's a proof of concept. You know, they should probably be throwing away two out of the three business plans you write because just because George Carlin said, don't give up on ideas because they're bad, that's not necessarily good in business. So if it's a bad idea and it doesn't work on paper, it's not going to work in reality. So the business plan is a very, it was a three-year process for me because I wanted to pull on boots and be like the Sprecher scene and, you know, make beer and fill trucks. But the market wasn't ready for that. The market needed the Milwaukee Ale House where people could come in and one glass at a time, understand what craft beer was all about. So the business plan actually created that awareness of what the market was and the opportunity to do it, how big to make it and what you don't necessarily predict, but the business plan still reads well, but I would have never expected it took 10 years to open the packaging brewery and then another 10 to grow that. But that's how the organic nature of business growth happens. But, you know, it was deliberate and it had its, you know, there were benchmarks where we knew we wanted to get to before we did the next thing. And those things still read from that 20-year-old business plan pretty well. So you mentioned this process, multi-year process. Could you walk us through some of the wins, losses, and or growing pains that you went through during that period of time? Prior to opening the alehouse or anywhere along the way? I'd say anywhere along the way would be fine. Yeah. I mean, the three-year process of the business plan was, you know, I was planning, you know, it was a dream thing. It was, I'd seen the opportunity, fell in love with the industry, got to be educated myself with it, learn more about it, travel a lot, figured it out, wrote the business plan, try to find locations, that whole process. And then of course, finance it. If, you know, you're quitting your day job to do it, you have to get partners. And so that whole process was deliberate and, 
you know, lengthy. And then there was, of course, six months to build the place. So that was kind of chunking right along like you'd expect it to. But, you know, the 10 years to get to a packaging plant, that's the dynamics of the market. Craft beer seems like this darling industry that always was on the upswing. But in the early 2000s, there was actually a period that the alehouse kind of validated this packaged beer out in the marketplace really had no shelf space. So it was having a period of stuck in the corner, not really good visibility. The big guys were pushing it into the corner and also quality. There was some real, you know, not the greatest craft beer out there. So it actually dipped a little bit in the early 2000s. So that was not the time to jump on the packaging brewery plan at that moment. So, you know, 2007 is about when things were clicking right in our business model and the marketplace where it made sense to start distributing beer outside of the alehouse. And I think you could probably speak to this with your business background, your entrepreneur background. It's certainly one thing to have success. It's another thing to maintain success. And obviously your organization has certainly had your fair share of success. What are some of your plans to continue to grow the business at this point? Well, it's interesting because, you know, we are in a fun category that everybody assumes, you know, just craft beer, it's just keep making more beer and more people will drink it. But it is highly competitive and the larger players in the industry have moved into the space, you know, very actively and, and it kind of in a, sometimes by acquisition, buying some of the brands that everybody knows about and also by putting out some decent craft beer themselves. And then consumer products and consumer tastes kind of shift. So we're now seeing a a tendency towards a health and wellness category in beverages. And for us, a lot of breweries are, you know, see that as that's not craft beer, but we say it, see it as the same kind of fun, innovative thing we were doing 20 years ago with beer. We're doing that now in some of these new spaces. So it's recognizing that you've got to continue to adapt. And we were doing that by getting people to try our, you know, our honey ale next to other mass produced beers and convincing them one beer at a time to try a craft beer. We're doing the same thing in other innovative adult beverage spaces. And it's another thing I think Milwaukeeans will be really proud to see the level of innovation that's happening there too. When you look back at your career, Jim, at this point, and something tells me you're just getting going, what would you say is your most proud accomplishment? I'd say because we're so employee-based, I mean, we really are. When you think about when you walk into the alehouse, you know, it's every employee that you come in contact with that is the face of our company at that point. It's when the, you know, some of the employees that, that have been working for us for a couple of years get their first house and, or we help them with some major move in their life and they end up being with us for a long time and that kind of career growth and they become part of the Milwaukee community, which we try to be part of the Milwaukee community. So it's really, I mean, there's nothing else in business that's, I think, in a people-oriented business that's better than seeing the growth of your people. Yeah. And I like to equate being an entrepreneur to an iceberg. And we've all seen on social media posters that hang in people's offices. You'll see that picture of an iceberg. What a lot of people see is the tip of the iceberg above the water, the success. What they don't see is the entire ice flotilla or whatever underneath the water. The hard work, the late nights, the stress, the sacrifice, the risk that you've taken to get to that success. So as an entrepreneur, obviously you're, you're no stranger to resiliency, overcoming obstacles, et cetera. What would you say was your worst day professionally? Ooh. And how did you overcome that? 
I have this problem of recency. Yesterday kind of stunk because we found out we had a COVID case in our group. But no, I'd say in, in reality, I'd say it's tough to say. There's there Nothing has been so catastrophic as to, you know, to call it the worst day ever. There's been stressful days. There's been days where you said, oh my God, how's next week going to work? How's payroll going to work? You know, those kinds of things. But all in all, we've been very fortunate and in the life and health of our employees and everything else. So, you know, you can get over all those other things, but bad days are bad days. You know, they are what they are. So as, as far as challenges go, I'd say, you know, in the last couple of years, and even in this, again, the factor of recency is this COVID thing is a wild thing that you could never, I mean, when you talk about the iceberg metaphor is, you know, you, I always say I'm missing that risk gene. I'd just still be open throttle, assuming somehow I'm going to get you know, in the gap between the big chunks. And in business, we manage risk in a way that, you know, you try to understand the market, you try to look at opportunity and manage the risk of, you know, the marketing costs, the people involved, everything else. And then then we hire you guys to manage the risk that we don't know anything about. And then, you know, then we plow ahead full speed ahead. So, you know, the bad day thing is usually managed by some level of comfort and, and risk. Have I had a lot of sleepless nights? Oh yeah, just even in the last week. But but it is it's part of what I love about business is you get those ups and the downs. So I'm okay with it. Now, you've gone through some shifts and changes throughout the course of your career. In fact, some people might not know this, but you, Jim, began your career as an environmental engineer. What made you change career paths? I always thought I'd own my own engineering company. So I always wanted to do something in, you know, something that I could control in my own business. But I really, I was, this environmental engineering company is actually, it's kind of a word scrabble, CH2M Hill. They actually do a lot of work in the Milwaukee area, but they are global. And I was fortunate enough to work out of their their headquarters in Denver and their design center in Corvallis, Oregon, which in the 80s was the birthplace of what we know as commercialized craft beer. And I was just in love with the scale of the manufacturing and the quality of the product. And I had a new passion for what I wanted to do with my business. And so it was, that was the beginning of that three-year process was while I was working and traveling to these cool areas with, you know, with this scene starting as I'd come home to Milwaukee and go, you know, we need to get going on this. And, you know, and Milwaukee Alehouse even has some little nods to the Wincoop in, in Denver is a famous, famous brew pub. And, and there's, you know, the timber structure, we were looking for something similar to that. So, you know, we could build a beer business in a big space. So how do you use the knowledge that you acquired as an environmental engineer in your current capacity? Oh, man, I used to love that commercial series for the Holiday Inn Express, you know, is where the guy was, the guy's doing surgery on somebody and he's not a surgeon, but he stayed in a Holiday Inn Express. I mean, there is something to that with engineers. We think we can figure anything out. I mean, I you guys probably have a lot of customers that are engineer owned and they tend to, you know, overcommit, overachieve. That's kind of what, uh, there's only certain things like structural engineering I won't try to tackle. And so I, when I fell in love with the business, I started scaling up my homebrew setup to something that was pretty outrageous and taught me a lot about the microbiology side of the business. And there's a lot to read and got hooked up with some people that were knowledgeable in the field, hung around a lot at, at Sprecher and Lakefront back in those days. In fact, there weren't homebrew supply stores. So you'd talk your friendly neighborhood brewery into selling you some supplies and that's how that worked so it was just a 
path of self-education and then working with some really knowledgeable people. One of the things about Milwaukee is we've got resources for making beer. Not only is it an agricultural product, so we've got all that. We have water, the best water in the world, which is part of why all the breweries have been here over the years. But we also have human resources in brewing that you wouldn't believe. Some of the smartest minds in brewing are right here. And that's been a tremendous benefit to my knowledge and our business overall. So we talk about your background with environmental related matters, your your interest in that field, your passion in that field. What are you currently doing at the brewery from a sustainability standpoint? Well, that's been a core part of our ethos as soon as we started the business and especially as we moved in 2007 into manufacturing. So, you know, everything from being the first brewery to to put craft beer in a can, that was a big deal because there wasn't a market for it back then, but it's such a better package for beer, but tremendously more sustainable package because of its recyclability and the recycle rate of it versus glass and the weight of it and all those things that factor into an environmental footprint. But then from an engineering standpoint, we, everything, even in the, if you've been to second street brewery, it's nothing like our current brewery. Our old brewery was looked a little rough, but it had in its bones, a lot of energy recovery capability. And a lot of that stuff carries into our new brewery too, as well. And then some, but energy recovery. So we're doing a lot of heating and cooling. So every time you do that, you can either waste that energy. Like you see a plume coming out of the top of a factory or you could recover that energy and use it for something, one of those offsetting needs. So that's one of the big, without getting too wonky, one of the big things we do is try to capture energy in both the up and the down swings. And then and then tours are a big part of it is educating people on both, you know, how important Lake Michigan is and how we should value that resource and, you know, some of the things that everybody could be doing in their daily lives. We have something called Crate Club where you can save, we're saving thousands of pounds of packaging materials by letting people come in and build their own cases in a plastic crate that they reuse and then they bring that back and come in once a month and do you build your own and save packaging so it's just that everybody's little way to participate and so it's a combination of these real industrial solutions and then also kind of education where does your passion for brewing come from were you exposed to this at a certain time? Did somebody in your life have a passion for this as well? I, I love listening to you talk about this because I can hear the passion in your voice. <laughs> Where did that start? Where did that come from? I think, you know, I, I was of the, the fortunate age group where when I came to Marquette as a freshman, drinking age was 18. So I headed right for the brewery tours. And back then, you know, you really, I had an appreciation for the scale and the things that were happening. I love the Paps Brewery Tour. It, it just really had a a great vibe to it. We, I mean, that became, that was like, we called it the Marquette happy hour and, and it was fantastic. And not only learning a lot, but having this tremendous respect and, and people I met Marquette was a little more of a commuter college back in 82. And, and a lot of the people that I was classmates with taught me about Milwaukee and their parents had a tapper on the fridge in the garage. And, you know, I mean, it was just, it was part of culture here in a way that I really appreciated it. And of course, like the product. And then as I got into the full flavored aspects of craft brewing and what was happening there and the culture around craft brewing. I mean, I was hooked. So it's been, and the same things happening, like in this new era of the non-traditional beer products where we're getting into these seltzers and things that are brewed the same, you know, in the same systems and processes, but they're naturally gluten-free and all this stuff. It has, you know, there's, you can get just as hooked on the process and the innovation side of that as you can with the idea of trying to get a hold of 
you know, a thousand pounds of the cool new hop. So it's, it's, it works. You know, I think the thing that excites me is that, you know, is putting your passion into trying to get one of these products out into the market as quickly as possible in a timely way, but also best to market and having people, you know, when I walk in here and have you guys say, boy, I just love that new Tierra Buena. It's awesome. So that's what triggers it really. How was that for a plug? Very nice. Thanks. Very nice. So when you guys set up shop in the 90s, at the time, it was an interesting selection you made choosing the third ward as the location for your organization. Can you talk to us a little bit about why you made that decision? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think a lot of people listening may not realize this, but the third ward wasn't hot happening place. It is now. It didn't, there was no river walk and, and there was no public market, but one thing that was interesting was they had a plan. So I had five locations. I wanted to be on the river because water was a big deal. I want, you know, I wanted the water activation and the river was just starting to, you know, it had been cleaned up quite a bit. The river walk plan was starting to formulate. So looked all the way from where, you know, all the way up McKinley area. I mean, there was properties up and down the, the property that rock bottom is in now was on the list. And, and what was compelling about the third ward, although the the waterfront properties, none of them, they were all in, in like, it was either art galleries, you know, artist spaces or some light duty illegal manufacturing. It was pretty crazy. There were some antique stores. It was kind of a rough little area that you just parked for Summerfest. And what the third ward had though was a plan. They were back to a plan, but they had a plan, a master plan for the area and board of directors that was really passionate about committing to this thing. Einer Tangen, who owned one of the, the earlier five-star restaurants in Cafe Marche in the Third Ward, he was great. He was a great advocate for the development of this area. And he saw the conversion of all these underutilized buildings into something better. So we really highlighted, you know, that property rose to the top of the list because the Third Ward had a plan for parking structures. They had a plan for the Riverwalk coming in and all those things eventually came to fruition. I mean, when we opened the alehouse, you could park for free anywhere you wanted down there. And if you were willing to walk a block and we had a porn store next door on one side and a used clothing store on the other. So, I mean, it was totally different than it is now, but the plan was in place and that was followed. I mean, it was a totally different scene and there were only a couple places to hang out in the third ward back then, but you know, now look at it with the traffic from the public market and the number of people you can see walking around down on a Saturday afternoon. It's incredible. And the dream came true even on a non-festival weekend. It's bustling. So we pay attention to things rather closely here at the Star Group based on what we watch, what we read, what we listen to. And I got to tell you, we've been seeing some press releases on SUP. So if you don't mind me asking, what's up? <laughs> What's up? Do you see so, what I did there? Yeah, I do. Do you like yeah, that? That's, that was Thank a good you. lead in. You can, you can turn your baseball cap around backwards. <laughs> <laughs> so that is a great story because as we developed our capabilities in what's called hard seltzer, it's a product, hard seltzer for those that don't know, a little education, is something that became legal about three years ago. There was no White Claw before that. And at the end of, what was it? It was the end of 2017, literally. So 2018 White Claw came out and that process is something that breweries were not able to do, which is create alcohol from things other than barley. And so it's still fermentation, but in our case, we use organic cane sugar and we developed a pretty great 
filtration process on that so that it was suitable for scaling products on a national level. And we came in contact with these guys from Boston who had developed this product and had been trying to make it somewhere else and weren't too happy. And we developed a partnership to produce and sell this through a 27 state channel that they had created the sales avenue for this thing. So it seemed like a great partnership and the product was really well received. It was the first widely distributed organic seltzer in the U.S. at the time, last year, all of last year. And we started making it for them. And as time went on, the Boston side of that SUP relationship, they actually disbanded their company during COVID and everything else. And we now producing all the SUP and selling all this up. So it's, it's a brand. We didn't actually, the, it sounds almost like a bro brand with the sup thing, but it is actually a good, fresh, clean, organic seltzer in a traditional 12 ounce can. And it's, it does really well in warm weather climates because the flavors are lemon, lime, cucumber, and a black cherry. Everybody's got a black cherry, but the lemon, lime, and cucumber are very refreshing light ones. So it was a strange story of partnership turned into brand ownership. And it's now part of the Mocky Brewing Company brand family besides the Tierra Buena that we created ourselves. I think technology wonks would really get a kick out of seeing your setup at the brewery. I know there's a lot of high-tech details that you have there, a lot of innovative gadgetry. It's a very unique setup you've got going on. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. The background I had when you know I was an environmental engineer is I specialized in control systems, so I've always had a relationship with our big neighbor, in Walker's Point, Rockwell Automation. I, I used to do a lot of integration work with their products in my former life, and we maintained a relationship with them. We did some things at Second Street, but Second Street was pretty limited. When we had the opportunity to do this showpiece brewery, we partnered with Rockwell and basically developed a platform for the, that they can use in all other breweries of our size, which was very unique because automation, if you come to the brewery tour, you'll get to really get literally hands-on to this system. I mean, it's touch screens and you can call up recipes and create a batch of beer, clean a tank, monitor the progress. There's a tremendous amount of data, but the key part of it is it's not taking the craft out of craft brewing. This is not just push button brewing. I could just teach you to do it. You could still screw it up royally. It's what it really is doing. If you brewed at second street, you spent a lot of your time worrying about that pump turning on and off at the right time, worrying about the temperature of something and opening and closing a valve. And the Rockwell automation system takes over those mundane tasks and allows the brewer to focus on the art of brewing or the art of making a seltzer and the flavors that are involved. So it's really an amazing thing from a quality standpoint. And then from our regulatory standpoint and everything else, the you know there's a waterfall of data we're getting off of this system at all times on every piece of equipment. And that aggregate data allows us to not only maintain quality from tip to tail and after it gets into your hands out in the marketplace, but also preventive maintenance and energy usage. We're going through an energy audit right now to try to maximize energy efficiency on a motor-by-motor basis. And that's what this kind of, when you talk about technology-driven industrial facility, I mean, we should be just as proud of Rockwell being in town as all the breweries because they are the world leader in in this robust industrial automation and it's it's impressive stuff and and they're fun there it's a blast for a geek like me to work with them well jim i gotta say all this talking is making me quite thirsty so i think i'm gonna have to 
You're speaking my language. I think we're going to have to rectify this situation. So I was very much looking forward to this conversation. I beer and brewing. There's just so much to it. It's it's very fascinating. Your passion is highly infectious. Thank you for all the good work that you're doing. Thank you for impacting the local economy. And it was a wonderful pleasure to have you in the studio here today. Well, it's certainly my pleasure. And don't underestimate the importance of your insurance partners, both for for the obvious risk management, but also for the product support. These guys are great advocates for us out in the marketplace. And when you run into the star group, tell them you tried a Milwaukee Brewing Company product. I'd love it. So I can't believe we've cooked through this time already. So cheers. Time flies when you're having fun. Thanks, Jim. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Known with Paul M. Newberger. If you like our show and want to know more, check us out at stargroup.com. That's S-T-A-R-R-Group.com slash podcast. We're also available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.